Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. Session number 10, our last session for this semester. So we'll get everybody in, we'll get started tonight. I appreciate you going the distance with me on this session. And uh, I announced last week, in case you weren't here, uh, the new semester will start February 1st, Wednesday night, February 1st. It will be 13 weeks. And uh, my session in here will be from the beginning to the end. It'll be 31 different topics from Genesis to Revelation, 31 topics. And the purpose of the study is to connect the dots between Genesis to Revelation to show it's one story. And I'll give you 31 different stories inside the one story to do the session. So that's our promo for next time. Let's pray and we'll launch session 10 tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of uh, reading Revelation and the blessing that you offer to those who will read and believe it. So, Lord, uh, tonight's the last session, and Lord, it's the grand finale when everything that all of creation has groaned for and longed for and waited for will be revealed in tonight's session, an event that we in this church, um, we groan for. So, Lord... Um, Make it real in our hearts tonight so that uh, it won't just be a story, but it'll be our hope, our expectancy, and the purpose of our life as we lean forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's final session is going to draw some of the same conclusions as one of my root sessions back in 2018. And the reason I bring that up is uh, back in 2018, I used a uh, some of the stuff from David Jeremiah's Agents of Apocalypse. And when I do something like that, I always want to uh, mention that. So uh, some of that will be in tonight's session as well. So I'll give Dr. Uh, David Jeremiah um, credit and thanks on that. So here we go. Well, we're going to do a little short review of the nine sessions and then dive into the grand finale number 10. So there's like 10 events that we've covered in the last, uh, what, nine, week, nine sessions. The time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation is coming. That's how it all began. Daniel's 70th week. And that's when I introduced, don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. And number two, it's time for the church to come up here. If you read Revelation chapter 4, that's how it begins. It's time for the church to come up here, the rapture. Pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Because when the church departs, something comes. And that's number three. The Father hands the scroll that is sealed with seven seals to Jesus, giving him power and authority over the earth. He alone is worthy to open the seven seals. And when he begins to open the seven seals, the tribulation begins. Horror comes to the earth. The four horses of the apocalypse led by the Antichrist are leashed, unleashed upon the earth. The first seal is what? The white horse and the tribulation. The white horse uh, comes on a white horse to make you think he's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah. He's the false Messiah, and he's the one who is unleashed, the first seal. And he's the beginning of the four horses of the apocalypse. 
Number five, these are kind of sequential, the best you can make it out, the martyred souls. These are tribulation saints under the altar, are, un, are, are um, revealed, and they cry out what? How much longer until you bring us justice upon the earth? And he says, he clothed them in white robes and said, wait a little longer because there are many more who are going to join you. They're going to die. And the 144,000 are revealed to preach to Israel in the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, supernaturally empowered Jewish evangelists. And then the trumpets begin to blow. They begin to blow in all of creation. Water, earth, and sky begin to shake. The fifth trumpet specifically blows and the abyss prison opens, releasing demonic hordes upon the earth that torment those who have not been sealed by God's mark of ownership. They, they have the ability to torment anyone except those who have been marked. We know that is specifically a reference to the 144,000, which they cannot touch. The two witnesses then are introduced and they begin to preach Jesus as Messiah from Jerusalem under great opposition. And the dragon tries to destroy the, the child of the woman, Israel giving birth to Messiah. We get to number nine, the unholy trinity is revealed. The dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the antichrist, and the false prophet are introduced, and they lead the world into a deep and deadly deception. Number 10, the 144,000 sing worship songs around the throne of Jesus as the grapes of wrath harvest takes place on the earth. He swings the sickle, and the harvest is ready. It's not a harvest of good. It's a harvest of evil. Now, number 11. The event that all creation has been groaning and waiting for will be revealed. And you've got to understand the context. You will not understand it. That's why this is so powerful. This session is so powerful. Because you understand how it ends, but you understand the horror that leads up to it. So you've got this great contrast of good and evil, of horror and wonder, and what it is to receive Christ and escape the horror, because you see how bad the horror is going to be. So let's set the stage for this final revelation that will occur at the end of the tribulation. So here's how I'd like to set the stage tonight. Have you ever allowed your imagination to consider the Garden of Eden and what life was like to live then and there? In the beginning when man lived in the presence of God? In fact, let's just do something. Everybody close your eyes and let your imagination kind of just whatever can come to your mind. If you, if you thought about the Garden of Eden, what would you, what would you see? I can tell you what I see. I see this luscious green scenery, green trees, waterfalls, clear river, some jumping fish and a few fishing poles maybe. That's, that's, that's when I get off, off course there a little bit. The point is they lived in paradise. They lived in a perfect world in the presence of the perfect God. They lived in perfect bodies and they ate perfect food and they breathed perfect air. And at least for a while, everything and every one around them was perfect. Perfect, 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 perfect. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? But it wasn't heaven in the clouds. And this is so important. It was heaven on the earth. And, and almost all of us struggle with the idea that that could ever be replicated. 
but it's going to be. And tonight's going to reveal that. God's going to do that again. Do you think there will be heaven on earth again? Do you think that not just uh, in a place in the Middle East, but do you think God could make the whole planet of Garden of Eden? Perfect people and perfect bodies living in perfect peace with perfect nature in the presence of perfect God. If you can't imagine that in your mind tonight, what do you think the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote what we call Romans chapter 8? And I want you to bear in mind that Paul acknowledges the current imperfection and suffering and then gives you this contrast about this is the way it is now and it is real. It's suffering and there's death and there's decay. And you can take a concrete block, okay? You can take a concrete block, the thing we build houses on and set it in a field, open field long enough and that concrete block will turn to dust over time. Why? Because the world's under a curse. And the curse, it, everything is not evolving. It's devolving. It's not going up, it's going down. Everything decays. That's why the concept of evolution is kind of a preposterous idea if you just go out here and look. Is everything going up? No, everything's going down. It's going down. But what if God would change that? What if he could supernaturally recreate? So I'm going to read Romans 8, and the point is, I'm trying to set the stage for this grand finale tonight. Paul writes the church, and he says, yet what we suffer now, he's acknowledging the falling created world. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation, and I want you to notice all creation. And it's not just people, it's the earth and the trees and the water and the atmosphere and everything, everything, all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal, and I love how he starts this, when God will reveal who his real children are, who the true sons of God are. Are. Now, to really understand that, and boy, I could get sidetracked here. Some will be careful. In the heavenly realms, there's a spirit war. And in the spirit war, there are, there are sons of God. Not, not son of God, singular Jesus, but sons of God, children of God. But their large portion of them have been, they're, they're out. They've, they've lost their place. Satan, and they've lost their place as the sons of God. And they led a rebellion to where humankind has lost its place as sons of God. And in this event, he's going to reveal who the, who the hu real sons of God are. And they will all be aligned singularly underneath of the son of God. And if you're under Jesus, then you're the sons of God, the daughters of God. And he says that all of creation is waiting eagerly for a future day when God's going to reveal who his children really are. Because there's a whole lot that will think they are, but they won't be. Not in the end. Now that applies to humans, and that applies to the heavenly realms too. It applies to both. Because, and you'll see that some tonight. 
And here we go. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. So let's take waters, atmosphere, trees, the fact that a concrete block in the field will turn to dust. Everything is subject to decay and aging. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children. So you've got creation and God's children in looking forward in glorious freedom. Freedom from what? Death and decay. Death, which means you, you never have a finish line. You never have a line that you cross over. It, it, there's just, he just takes the line away. You don't, you don't, you don't ever stop. But all creation is subject to decay. So it's not just that you don't die, it's that you don't decay. Somebody say hallelujah. You, you don't decay, you don't age. You don't age. How do you think you're going to get eternal life if you age? He just stops the decay. And he doesn't just stop the decay of humans, he stops the decay of creation. And he undoes the curse. And the curse was what? Death and decay. And he's going to stop it. Wow. That's pretty big. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up in the present time. Why is creation groaning? Why, why, are, why is the church groaning? Because we know that he's going to do it. We just don't know when. And we know that this bondage of death and decay is going to be undone, but we don't know when. So we keep leaning into it. All creation is groaning eagerly, waiting for this present earth to be recreated into its former Garden of Eden glory. This is not a fairy tale. This is real. This is our blessed hope. Church, you need to understand this. This is why we stay in the race. This is why we don't falter. This is why we don't quit. This is why we never surrender to the world. Because one day the real sons of God, the real children of God are going to be revealed. And everything is at stake here. Is it possible? Does the Bible tell us of such a time on this present earth? Not, not in some distant galaxy where there's a bunch of green trees and waterfalls. No, no here. Here. So, look at the order. Revelation 19 reveals four different hallelujahs. As Jesus comes to the earth, what, what, Revelation 19, there's four different times. And by the way, it's interesting to me that, it, and you've heard me say this over the years, I would suspect that you would find the word hallelujah all the way through the Bible. Because it's just a churchy word. Lots of times I say, somebody say hallelujah. See, so you think it's all the way through the Bible too. You know it's not. It's only in Revelation 19. Do you know that? And it's only in Revelation 19, and what's the context? Jesus has come to reign. That's why we say, Maranatha, Hosanna, hallelujah, amen. Come soon, Lord, save us, begin to reign, make it so. That's where that comes from. So, in Revelation 19, 
Four different hallelujahs. Jesus comes to the earth. He comes down here and he begins to reign at the end of the tribulation. The king on the white horse whose rider is faithful and true comes down to this present earth. Now, what do you think? Okay, that's Revelation 19, okay? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Jesus is coming to reign. If that's 19 and there's a chronological order in that section, what do you think chapter 20 is going to be like? It reveals what will happen on the earth when Jesus comes to reign in Jerusalem. His arrival on the earth will change everything. When his feet touch the earth, when the creator, God, touches the earth, everything's going to change. This is what all creation has been groaning for. This is what the spirit inside of us, inside of me, is groaning for. So let's go. We're jumping now to Revelation 20. This is after the four hallelujahs. Let's find out what they're hallelujahing about. Can you, is that a word? I don't think so. <laughs> and then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. And he seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan. And he bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked. So Satan could not deceive the nations like he's doing right now, right? He's deceiving the nations right now. But when he gets locked in the abyss, he will not be able to deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years are finished. Afterward, after the thousand years are finished, he must be released for a little while. So there's your first scene. Then I saw thrones. Now, Satan's locked away, right? I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor, nor accepted the, his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And these are martyred, martyred souls, beheaded, martyred souls, martyred because they wouldn't take the mark. They wouldn't bow to the beast. They all came to life again. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of prison. Ooh. I'd like to leave that last sentence off, but I need to keep it in there. Six times in seven verses, you will find the specific description of time. A thousand years. You can spiritualize it if you want to, and many have and many do. It creates a lot of dissension in the church about whether that thousand years is literal or whether that thousand years is figurative. 
a thousand years of what and why. The thousand years begins with the day. By the way, I'm convinced the thousand years is literal. It is exactly what it says it is. It's a thousand years. The thousand years begins with the day. What day? The day of Jesus' physical arrival upon the earth. But I want to point out six specific things about this 1,000 years that began on the day that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. So six, six things. Listen carefully. It's the length of time that Satan will be bound, chained in the abyss in the bottomless pit. So I like to put it like this. It's the, it's the sentence of God for Satan's imprisonment. He's going to prison. He's going to be locked away in a prison for a thousand years. Number two, it's the length of time that the nations, and we're going to get into the nations in a little while. It's the length of time that the nations will not be deceived by Satan. These are regular people on the earth. There will be regular people on the earth in the thousand years. I'll tell you, I'll explain that in a little while. But they won't be able to be deceived. Why won't they be able to be deceived? Because Satan's in prison, Jesus is on the earth. Number three, it's the length of time that the martyred saints of Christ will reign with Christ as king. It's the length of time, number four, that the rest of the dead will wait. And I want you to understand the rest of the dead will not come to life again until the thousand years are over. Who are they? They are the unsaved dead. They are unsaved dead. They do not come to life again until the thousand years are over. They will wait until they are resurrected into judgment before God. That won't happen until the thousand year is over. Number five, it's the length of time that those who rise in the first resurrection, the church, will reign with Christ the King. So listen carefully. You will have a resurrection at the beginning of the tribulation. It's the church. It's the rapture. There will also be a resurrection of martyred souls at the end of the tribulation. They will also be raptured. It's, so both of them will be raptured. Both of them at that point will enter the millennial kingdom in a resurrected body. Number five. No, number six. It's the length of time that will elapse before Satan will again be released from God's prison. This 1,000 years is most commonly known today as the millennium. The word milli means thousand and anum means a year. So I've done this about five times in these, in these uh, 10 weeks, so I about as well do it again. What if, what if a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day? What if? And what if the first 2,000 years, the first 2,000 years was Adam to Abraham? And if you read the chronology, it looks like about 2,000 years, Adam to Abraham. So there's blood sacrifices, and then here comes Abraham, and from Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years. And now there's the Jewish people through which he's going to reveal what? He's going to reveal himself to the world through the Jews. And he's going to redeem. He's going to create a people called the children of God. From the world, he's going to call out a group called the children of God. 
And he spent 2,000 years invested into that, right? From Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years. And then the Jewish people kind of closes. There's pause. The church age begins. And as of right now, we're about 2,000 years into that one. So how many, if a day is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years is like a day, how many days has it been? Six days. What would happen on the seventh day? If you go to creation itself, what happened on the seventh day? God rested. And what does it mean God's rested? So he's like, well, that was rough. Do you think that's what God rested means? No, it means God says, I'm finished. It's complete. It's complete. So what if, what if, what if? I'm not trying to get deeply theological. I'm saying what if that's 6,000 years. 2,000, what we're in is the church. 2,000 before us was the Jews. 2,000 before that was God from Adam to Abraham. What if, what if the millennial reign of Christ at the end of the tribulation is God rested? That this is complete for 1,000 years. What if this is all just a picture of the creation event itself? And on the last day, God says, it's finished. He rested. Now, that's an interesting, that's an interesting perspective. And, and what's interesting about it is this. Um, God gave the Jewish people 2,000 years to become the children of God. And looks like as of now, he's given the Gentiles 2,000 years to become the children of God. And then at the end... The true identity of the children of God will be revealed. What did he say in Romans? All creation groans waiting for the day when all the children of God will be revealed. Who are they? They will come out of all three of those 2,000 year periods. They will come out of the sixth day and they will reign with him on the seventh day. What if? Interesting, isn't it? The first Adam lost his kingdom and dominion to Satan. But there is a day coming when King Jesus is going to take his, this kingdom and dominion back and make it his very own. He will be king, listen carefully, over the whole earth. There won't be any of this just Middle East or just a piece of land over, on, on, over next to the Jordan River and beside the Mediterranean. It'll be the whole earth. This is revealed as God the Father hands the scroll, the title deed of planet earth, sealed with seven seals to the lion from the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne at the beginning of the tribulation. Right before the four horses of the apocalypse are released, what does God do? What launches the tribulation? He hands the deed of the earth, the scroll with seven seals to the sun. And he's described specifically as the lion from the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. Think of the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm just always moved by this simplicity. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. What should, we, what should we pray? And what's Jesus say? It's Matthew 6.10. May your kingdom come soon. What kingdom? What are we talking about tonight? It's what comes at the end of the tribulation. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, let me, let me paraphrase. Why don't, why don't you make things down, like, down here like they are up there? One day he's going to. He's going to make things down here like they are up there. On earth, may your kingdom come to the earth. Not in, not in the clouds. And I want you to notice the song of heaven. When Jesus takes the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, sealed with seven seals, beginning the tribulation, the, the Antichrist white horse is about to be released. When Jesus takes the scroll, what's the song of heaven? What's the song of heaven? What are they singing? Verse 9. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become what? A kingdom. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. The kingdom will be on the earth. And when is that revealed? It's revealed several times, but at the, it's the song when, he, when the father hands the scroll to the son. Listen to how the psalmist describes this coming kingdom of Christ. Of, of Christ. I'm going to tell you, if you really want to do a study, a personal study, study Psalms chapter 2. And I'm going to read it tonight. I don't have time to go into detail, but you just read Psalms chapter 2. It says, why are the nations so angry. And why I make a big deal out of studying this is right now, today, right now, today, when I, when I look at the world and, and watch the daily news, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with their futile plans? They're going to save the planet. They're going to save the universe. They're going to save everything. They've got this plan they're going to put in place to save everything. Why do they waste their plans, their time with futile plans? The king's of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against whom? Against the Lord. And against his anointed one. Whom? The Son of God. Let's, let us break their chains. Are, do you understand what that means? The world's rulers said, let's break their chains. Let's unhitch us ourselves from the church. Let's unhitch ourselves from the Bible. Let's unhitch ourselves. Break this chain that binds us from our enlightenment. Let us break their chains, they cry. Free ourselves from the slavery of God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. He laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then, he only laughs for a little while. Then he becomes angry. And then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, what? What does the Lord declare in this scene? I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem. On my holy mountain. Who is he? His name is Jesus. You want to get unchained from him? then you will be chained to his adversary in eternity. That's the truth. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Father. 
Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. That is written almost a thousand years before the time of Christ. And it's already been decided. What did he say? I will give you the nation. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. When will he take that title deed and exercise his options? At the end of the tribulation. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the kingdom and the king were clearly defined on this present earth. And I'm going to tell you before I read it, this is what all creation has been waiting for since the birth of Christ. I don't know how you look at Christmas, but I'm going to tell you, I never look at Christmas without thinking about this right here. Don't be afraid, Mary. This is Gabriel, the angel, talking to Mary. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be very great and called the Son of the Most High God. Now, I want you to look at those. Those are prophetic announcements given in advance. She's not even pregnant yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come upon her yet. She's not pregnant. She's just getting the news. It's coming. So let's go back. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Could you check that off as accomplished? Check it off. Done. You will name him Jesus. Check it off. Done. He will be very great and called the son of the most high God. Check it off. Done. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Coming soon. Do you see? Do you see? Not everything in angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary has yet been fulfilled. Three of those have. This one has not yet been fulfilled. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. When Jesus in those 33 years, did he sit on the throne of David? No. Number th verse 33, and he will reign over Israel forever. It's coming. And his kingdom will never end. It's coming. You see, you can't read the Christmas story and miss something's coming. And it's not happened yet, but it's coming. The prophet Daniel describes it in incredible detail, some 500 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, as he interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to say it again. All creation is groaning in eager expectation. This is 500 years before Christ. And Daniel sees this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sees this dream. And he calls a Jewish man, Daniel, to interpret the dream. Daniel is a slave under King Nebuchadnezzar. But God has placed him there for exactly the right time. And here's Daniel's interpretation to the king. Listen carefully. 500 years before Christ. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I am wiser than anyone else, Daniel said, that I know the secret to your dream, but because God wants you, King Nebuchadnezzar, to understand 
what was in your heart when you had this dream. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. And by the way, I'll interpret it as I go. The head of the statue made of fine gold. It was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Its chest and arms were silver. That would be the Medo-Persian empire that would replace them. Its belly and thighs were bronze. That would be the, the nation of Greece, Alexander the Great, that would come after the Persian empire. Its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. That would be the Roman Empire that would follow after Greece. Understand, the Gentile kingdoms of men that would come and occupy the Holy Land and in many cases have authority over the Jewish people are revealed in this dream. Are you with me? It'll begin with the Babylonians, it'll go to the Medo-Persians, it'll go to Greece, and eventually Rome. When Jesus comes, who's in charge? Rome. In the dream, the kingdoms, the Gentile kingdoms of the earth are revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. Here, here comes the point, verse 34. As you watched, a rock was cut from the mountain but not by human hands. This is supernatural. A rock cut from a mountain. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Well, okay, if, the, if that's description of the ki Gentile kingdoms and the rock cut out of the mountain hits the feet of iron and clay and crushes all them, what is he saying? All the Gentile kingdoms of the earth will one day be destroyed by the rock cut out of the mountain. Right? Are you with me? This is 500 years before he's born. I'm going to read it again. Verse 34. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It, it struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them. All the, who's them? These kingdoms of men. The wind blew them away without a trace. All the earthly kingdoms are gone without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. I'm going to get excited if I'm not careful. <laughs> now let's jump down to verse 44. And during the reign of those kings, what are we talking about? Those Gentile kingdoms, okay? During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands that crushed the pieces of the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what was going to happen in the future. 
the dream is true and the meaning is, what's the last word? Certain. It's coming. King Nebuchadnezzar heard Daniel's interpretation and he bowed down to Daniel. Do you understand that? King Nebuchadnezzar at the time, he was the head of gold. He was the most powerful man on earth. And what did the most powerful man on earth do when he heard that from Daniel? He bowed to Daniel. You know what Daniel was? Daniel was his slave. He bowed to his slave. Why? He understood. If you know the story, Daniel... Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell them the dream. He said, not only are you going to have to interpret the dream, you got to tell me what I dreamt. And he knew when this kind of detail came out of Daniel's mouth that this is from God. So he bows down. You want more proof of something that's coming? Why, well, there's four hallelujahs in Revelation 19. The prophet Isaiah said this, and what's interesting to me is every year at Christmas, people read this. And it's a frustrating point for me, not that people read it at Christmas, but they, it's, it's the same frustration when you read the story at Christmas about uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, and you know what everybody skips? The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will never end. And nobody wants to talk about that. You only want to talk about what was. And what was is wonderful. Hallelujah. But what's coming is bigger than what was. Something's coming that's bigger than what was. So here comes Isaiah. 700, 750 years before Christ. Every one of you know the scripture. For to us a child is born. A son is given. We're entering the Christmas season. People are going to start saying, for to us a child is born. It's Jesus, baby Jesus. A son is given. God's given us his only begotten. But do you know what comes after that? The government will rest on his shoulders. You read the Gospels, right? You read the Gospels. Anywhere in that 33 years, did the government rest upon his shoulders? No. So what is he talking about? It's coming. The government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government, there it is again, and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. What government will rest on his shoulders? What is it? His government, the kingdom of Christ and its peace will never end. What government? What peace? Where? Where? Can you answer the question? We're just going to stick with the child is born, the son is given. I don't know what the other part means. Well, that's easy. He will rule with fairness and justice on the throne of David for all eternity. Let me tell you the truth. David's throne wasn't in heaven. Never was David's throne ever mentioned in heaven. 
David's throne is in Jerusalem on this present earth. God is passionate, and he will make this happen. In fact, the only remaining question for us is when. Because when it starts, it will have no end. Do you understand that once it starts, once his feet touch down upon the earth, a sequence of events will take place. And his kingdom will be established, and it is eternal. It will never end. And in that moment, what's Romans say? Romans say, in that point, the, the true, legitimate children of God will be revealed. The sons of God will be revealed. So let's jump to Revelation 11, 15. This is the seventh trumpet. This was um, inside the seventh, when he hit the seventh trumpet, I hope you all remember this part. It, it announced he's coming, but not yet. He, he's, it announced his coming, but there was still a little bit of time before his arrival. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud... There were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord. What, what has the world, the earth, has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is coming to make war on his enemies and to take control and command of planet earth away from Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Jesus will win and Jesus will reign on this present earth for 1,000 years. Why? Because he said so. Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth came a sharp sword. What's he doing with his sword? And by the way, why is it coming out of his mouth? What does it symbolize? His word. With his word, he will strike down the nations. I want to hold it up. With his word, he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. You know what the iron rod means? Absolute authority. Non-negotiation. You won't need a legislature. You won't be able to impeach him or vote him out of office. <laughs> Hallelujah. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title. He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of all lords. What nations is Jesus striking down? Now, here's when it gets interesting. What nations is He striking down? Will everyone be dead, or will some from the nations survive His arrival? King over kings, what kings? Lord over lords, what lords? Who's he ruling over? And if you reign with him for a thousand years, who are you reigning with him over? Who are they? Zechariah 14. I'm going back to the Old Testament. And then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. Who's, who, who are the nations? As he fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move toward the north, half will move toward the south. Fight against what nations? Is there another Mount of Olives, another Jerusalem? No, no. We're talking about the fact that when he comes, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and there's going to be a war. He's going to, he's going to put himself into this battle. If you understand anything about Zechariah 14, I didn't read the first two verses, but it says there will be, Israel will be at its end. 
The women will be being raped. They will be under invasion. Their houses will be ransacked, a great war. He specifically says that the the women of Israel will be raped by the invading army. And then his feet come and he begins to fight. He's talking about the battle. When he comes, he comes to do battle with the Antichrist, the kingdom of Antichrist that has reigned now for seven years. The earth will shake and split apart when he steps on the mountain. Jesus will be the king. And he will reign as king on this present earth. And guess what? This part's going to shock you and stretch some of you. So I'm going to ask you, are you ready? The Bible clearly states that Jesus will appoint resurrected King David to rule as prince under the authority of King Jesus in Jerusalem. I'm watching your faces. So when he comes to Jerusalem, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, set up his kingdom, resurrect. He's going to, there's a resurrection that will take place. Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. David is an old, David, Moses, Elijah. He's going to, he's going to re, uh, resurrect the Old Testament. I shouldn't say Elijah because there's, he's got his own story, but okay. So um, they're going to be resurrected. The King David's going to what? He's going to put him in as a prince under King Jesus in Jerusalem. Are you you serious? Ezekiel 34. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them, and the Lord will be their God. And my servant David will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. So if you want to know if resurrected people are going to reign with Christ in the millennial, think about that one. Can you see Moses walking around and David and all the Old Testament saints? What's interesting? Listen, here's what's interesting. Ezekiel lived about 500 years after the time of King David. Who who wrote that? Ezekiel. He lived about 500 years after the time of King David and some 600 years before the time of Jesus. And yet God reveals that Jesus will resurrect King David to reign as prince under him in Jerusalem. God already has all of that detail worked out. So I want you to stop right now and say, if you truly believe in the resurrection, would you struggle with any of this? And if you're struggling with any of this, there's a foundational flaw inside your faith that you're really not believing that you're going to get a resurrection. That's what all of this is about, is a resurrection. And why do I say that? Because you're not going to be reigning with him in some kind of a Casper the Friendly Ghost outfit. Right? You're not going to be a spook. You're not going to be some ghost, some spirit, right? And I want to put that in there. You're going to have a glorified human body. 2 Corinthians 5, 2. We grow weary in our present bodies. We long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. That's pretty clear. We're not going to be spirits without bodies. You're going to get a new body. 
It's going to be a glorified body. You won't be subject to death or decay. You won't age. You won't have, birth, have birthday parties anymore because at some point it become meaningless. Well, somebody would read that and say, well, that's great. I'm happy for King David. He's back in a resurrected body, reigning as prince in Jerusalem. But what about me? What about you? What about the church? Daniel talks about this as well. Let's go to Daniel 7, 15. I, Daniel, by the way, Daniel's 500 something years before Christ. I, Daniel, was troubled by all that I had seen and my visions, they terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. I covered those four kingdoms a few minutes ago. Four kingdoms, four Gentile kingdoms that will reign on the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom. In the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will reign forever and ever. In the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will reign forever and ever. Paul write to the Romans, he says what? All creation groans in eager expectations waiting for the children of God to be revealed. Who are they? That's who Daniel's talking about. The holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they'll reign forever and ever. Who are they, these holy people of the Most High? Let's go down to verse 27. Here they are again. Then the sovereignty and the power and the greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven are given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever and all rulers will serve and obey him. There will be a realm of authority on the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ. Jesus will be the king and David will reign as prime as prince under Jesus in Jerusalem. But there's more. Let's go to Matthew in the Gospels, Matthew 19, 27. Peter said, listen carefully. Peter said to Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to get? <laughs> that sounds like Peter. That sounds like us. Okay, I gave up all this. What are we going to get? Yes, Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new, and the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. You who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Two things in there I want you to notice. He starts that answer, that Peter's question, with 12 guys. 12 guys. There's 12 of you, and there are 12 tribes of Israel. 12 of you are going to reign in Jerusalem over the Jewish people under my authority. 12 of you. And then you notice he branches out from the 12, and he picks up another group of people. Did you see it? And everyone, not, now we're not talking about the 12 guys anymore, are we? And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father. Now he's talking about general terms. 
Anybody who has sacrificed for the name of Christ, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much in return. That, that's in this future kingdom, a hundred times more than you ever gave up, you're going to receive. And by the way, you're going to get eternal life at the same time. Who's going to turn that down? And there's one more. And there's a third picture. You see it? Many who are the greatest now, the rich people now, the famous now, are going to be the most least important then. And I call it the great reversal when he takes the top to the bottom and he takes the bottom to the top and he flips the whole thing over. And that's why he says, if you'll humble yourself, I will lift you up. But if you exalt yourself, I will take you down. When you approach him, you approach him at the bottom. Let him lift you up. Don't try to approach him from up here because then he's going to put you down. Approach him from the bottom. Peter was a Jew from the seed of Abraham, an apostle of Jesus. He will sit on one of 12 thrones, judging, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish people. The apostle Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. So Peter's primary mission was what? To the Jewish people. The Bible says that clearly. But the apostle Paul, he's Jewish, but his mission was what? To the Gentiles. He describes the role of the resurrected and glorified church in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Paul is writing to a Gentile church. So that would have application for us. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide on these very little things among yourselves? And what he was chastising them for is they were going to civil authorities to settle church disputes. You need to settle it yourself. Don't you realize one day you're going to judge the world? Can you imagine that the legislative people, that there will be people, Christians, in places of authority ruling over, making decisions over people when Jesus comes to the earth to separate the sheep and the goats? I don't have time to go into that in detail. The word judge doesn't necessarily mean final judgment, but it's a term of ruler. Example, Israel lived in the time of the judges before there were kings. So when you see the word judge, it doesn't necessarily, it could mean that you judge like issue guilty or, or innocent, but it also could just mean that you were a ruler. But understand this, a time's coming when there'll be no more war. How does that sound to you? You can't have a Garden of Eden on the earth if wars are breaking out, right? Kind of against the whole Garden of Eden concept. So in Isaiah 2, verse 2, it says this, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on the earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and, all, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations, there it is again, will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations. There they are again, nations. The Lord will mediate between nations. When he mediates, what is it? He's the king in Jerusalem. He will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They're, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. 
No war between kings or kingdoms, but also no war between mankind and animal, animal kingdoms. You know, peace between nations and peace between the created world. You know, there was a time that in the Garden of Eden, do you think it was fearful to see a lion, a tiger, and a bear? Oh, my. <laughs> Did you? It wasn't, was it? You know, it wasn't fearful. When did that change, by the way? If you'll read the count, when Noah comes off of the boat, when he comes off of the boat, God says in that moment, he put the fear of man inside the animals. And suddenly they separated from each other. Why would they become afraid? Because now we're going to eat you. Both ways. You, you eat them, they'll eat you. So this is going to change. All creation is groaning. And the animal kingdom's groaning too. 11 uh, verse 1. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. You know who he is? Jesus. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from an old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. And he will not judge by appearance or make decisions based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. You see his role? He's the king of the whole world. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And in that day, as he reigns, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne, you know who he is. The heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Garden of Eden will come again. For how long? For a thousand years. There will be people. Will there be people born on the earth during the thousand years? Yes. Stay with me. Born to whom? Not to people in resurrected bodies. I don't see that happening. Not to people in resurrected bodies, but what about those believers who did not die in the tribulation? And I got to be careful when I say this. What about believers that did not die in the tribulation, referred to as the nations? Will some from the nations survive the tribulation? Yes. There will be believers who survive the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom in natural flesh. And yes, I believe they will have children during the thousand year reign of Christ. And here's what's interesting. Life expectancy from these people will be incredible. Incredible. I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah 65. No longer will babies die when they're only a few days old. No longer will adults die when they have before they have lived a full life. Why? Because it's like a Garden of Eden has come back to the earth. 
No longer will, now are they in eternal flesh? No, not yet, not yet. They survived the tribulation. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. What, at 100? Yeah. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards, for my people will live as long as trees. <laughs> and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune, for they are a people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me, and while they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Here he comes again. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I the Lord have spoken. What about the land? Does anyone think this is looking more and more like the Garden of Eden? It is to me. All creation's groaning. What about the land? Joel 22. What do you think life will be like? Did you ever notice in Adam and Eve that he put him in the garden to tend it, to cultivate it? He didn't give him a lazy boy and servants from other planets to bring him fruit. He was going to have to what? You're going to work the soil. You're going to you're going to have something to do. It won't be toilsome labor, sweat from your brow, briars, I hate this job kind of a life. It'll be the most joyful thing you ever did. And a man will live under his own grapevine, his own vineyard. Listen, Joel 2.22, don't be afraid. You animals of the field for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Sound like Garden of Eden? Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more, the autumn rains will come, and as well as the rains of spring, the threshing floor will again be piled high with grain, and the oppressors will overflow with new wine and olive oil. I've always considered the thousand-year rain as a very agricultural environment, just me personally. I just think that that's the way it was originally and that much of the world will be kind of agricultural based, that the earth will yield its fruit and we will live in the middle of God's produce. Isaiah 35, even the wilderness and the desert will be glad in those days. Wilderness, desert. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The desert will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plains of Sharon. There the Lord will display His glory, the splendor of our God. King Jesus, He will stand on the Mount of Olives and take a seat on David's throne in Jerusalem. Satan will be put in prison for a thousand years and the earth will be totally changed by these two single events. Jesus is here. Satan is gone. You and I will have returned with Jesus to this present earth and watch as Jesus turns this earth into the Garden of Eden. At the end of the thousand years, there will be a final resurrection of the lost, and then there's going to be a radical transformation of this present earth by fire. 
My question tonight in closing is this. Do you believe in the resurrection? See, everything in this subject tonight bases upon the resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power. What's the second death? It's when you died and you're going to be raised to die again forever. It's when he raises you up to put you in hell. For them, the second death holds no power. For they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Can you see it tonight? The Garden of Eden, you and I resurrected in a new world, in a new world, into new bodies with eternal life. All of creation is groaning in eager expectation for this event. Do you believe any of this, some of this, all of this, none of this? The last word tonight comes from Jesus in the final chapter of the Revelation. And he's talking to the church in this last section. Revelation has 22 chapters. This is the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and I am the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride. Who's the bride? She's the church. The spirit, that's Jesus, the spirit of Christ, and the church say, come. Let anyone who hears this, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires, who desires drink freely from the water of life. And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, that's us. If anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city that is described in this book. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, what? Say it out loud. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Do not let that day catch you unaware like a tramp, for that day will come upon everyone living upon the earth. But be ready at all times. Pray that you be strong enough to escape these coming horrors. Stand before the Son of Man. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for these 10 sessions. But most of all, I thank you for this glorious hope that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. That you're going to give us a resurrection. You're going to breathe into us the breath of eternal life. And no more death, no more decay. No more decay. We're going to be living in a world that has no end. A garden of Eden forever in your presence. Glories beyond our comprehension. So, Father, make us strong and very courageous while we wait for that day. And as all creation is groaning in eager expectation about who the children of God really are, may you put in our hearts this hope, this expectancy, this faith that transforms us and shares this good news with others in our time of waiting. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.